The Office of Personnel Management is trying to figure out how to promote more diverse employees to senior-level government jobs. Officials think pay bumps, training, and partnering with local institutions can all help. Khalila Harris, OPM's Deputy Chief of Staff, says another part of the solution is looking at the data. To identify if there are gaps in places, where there are gaps in places that we need to pay closer attention to, whether it is an opportunity for promotion, for pay increase, for opportunities to interact with the most senior leadership in your agency. Those are all ways we believe um, that people feel like they're talents are being acknowledged. In each federal agency, there are pools of resources to provide awards, monetary awards to team members for work that they've done. And all of those things come together to support the federal workforce in feeling like they're in the right place. One other thing that I would include is the fact that within some of these MOUs, we're providing upskilling for existing federal employees so they don't feel stuck in their roles. Right. Sometimes people will join an organization and not feel like there's a pathway for them to get promoted. But the federal government is partnering with a number of institutions for very low cost tuition so that they can improve their skill set so that they can obtain more senior roles if that's their desire. You spoke briefly about just the role of remote opportunities or teleworking opportunities that, you know, you can maybe filter down and find them on USA Jobs. And I wanted to ask a little bit about that because you know, that's something that's talked about a lot is we see federal employees who are favoring agencies that have more flexible telework policies. How does that really tie into this DEIA initiative? And what's the importance of remote work opportunities to kind of grow that? Telework opportunities really are contingent on a particular agency and their management to decide how they implement that in connection with their mission, right? All jobs are not able to have teleworking. So that's a very different topic than remote work. There are jobs that you're able to do completely remote where you don't have to go into an office. Our federal executive boards around the country provide connectivity to the agency headquarters in D.C. And so even at OPM, we have people who work across the 50 states who support the work of OPM. A remote work is critical in this post-COVID coming into our consciousness. Remote work is something that is important to many people, allowing them to stay in their communities, in our rural communities, in our communities that have fewer resources. It does not make sense to pull people who are anchors of those communities out to go work in other places. And people, frankly, want to stay in their communities with people who raise them, with their relatives, and with the values and culture that they're familiar with. So remote work for the first time is something that you can search for on USA Jobs, 100% remote. On the telework front, again, that that really is contingent on management of agency by agency, subunit by subunit, on whether or not those roles are ones that can be flexible enough for people to come in and out on a hybrid basis. I think most federal agencies prior to the pandemic had telework policies where people could access telework, where they could, you know, if they needed to be home for a couple of days or needed to travel for a couple of days, but they had essential work that they needed to do, that they could do that remotely. And with the advances of technology, we are looking at telework and remote work policies in different ways for the future of work, which is something that OPM is really out in front of in terms of thought leadership around what the future of work looks like. Is there anything else in your mind to pay attention to when it comes to this connection between remote work and DEIA priorities? We also need to be conscious of the ways in which building your network 
allows for opportunity. So we are looking at expanding that conversation around the future of work to talk about what the context is and the quality of your work environment. And sometimes that does require you to go into a brick and mortar place so you can meet people, have those cooler conversations and those impromptu discussions where you really need to see someone's body language in a way that you cannot online. And I think, unfortunately, people talk about telework in, in, in very narrow ways and don't think about the full expanse of how that can impact people from the global majority, young people who might be first-generation college and not have the network that other people have, and just saying to them, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. You should work at a company that you feel most flexible at and that may, may allow you to do 100% remote or, or maximal telework. Well, are they also talking with them about how they build their networks in that environment, how they are contributed in a way that is effective and that is visible to their leadership, how they are accessing mentorship and sponsorship from people who can really help help them advance their careers. And those conversations need to happen simultaneously as opposed to that narrow, well, if you don't have remote or if you're not flexible on telework, that's not the company for me. And unfortunately, I think we hear sometimes people talking about young people in ways that are very narrow and lack nuance because all young people are not the same. When you talk about people from the global majority, when you talk about people who may be the children of immigrants or, or new Americans themselves, when you talk about young people who are from communities that have been underrepresented and disenfranchised, it's not enough to just say, you know, those young people want to have 100% remote or maximal telework. As people who have been in industry and understand the shifts, OPM is trying to provide thought leadership for agencies and how they create structures that both allows for maximal telework and also accounts for that DEI perspective of how do we make sure that this is not unintentionally causing gaps in equity when it comes to accessing opportunity in those organizations. When we know human nature is to pull people up who you see all the time, who you can touch, who you can see their body language. So those are some of the things we're thinking about as we talk about the future of work. You are fairly new to your role at OPM. I wanted to ask what are some of the focuses or main areas of priority that you have in the short term coming up and just anything else that we really missed in this conversation that you wanted to highlight from from your work so far. I'm new to OPM, but this is my second stint at OPM. I also was here during the Obama administration. And a priority for Director Ahuja is making sure that this agency knows its value and that the rest of the federal government is clear about the value of this agency, that we are really trying to power a strong federal workforce. And so that means we are building out opportunities to bring in early career talent. That's a massive, massive, massive priority for us. The federal workforce is aging. And if people join the federal workforce right out of college and they're in their 40s, many are able to retire in their 40s. So only 20% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. Um, and that that is a potential crisis factor if we have people beginning to retire with pensions and droves and not enough young people who want to join the federal workforce. So that's a critical priority. Also ensuring that we are upskilling, as I said before, but really looking at talent more broadly and not just based on degrees. And then the last thing I would say is a priority is making sure we are servicing our retirees' annuitants and their families and making sure that their service that they provided for the public 
is honored by them having access to their retirement benefits in a timely manner so that they can move on with whatever they want to do post-federal service and take care of their families. So those are three things that we are really prioritizing, in addition to, of course, making sure we staff up for the bipartisan infrastructure law, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. The, the massive amounts of hiring we need to do to get those things rolling are also of critical importance. OPM Deputy Chief of Staff Kalila Harris speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.